Section 67 of Mark Twain, A Biography. Volume 2. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mark Twain, A Biography. By Albert Bigelow Payne. Chapter 171. A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. From every point of view it seemed necessary to make The Yankee in King Arthur's Court an important and pretentious publication. It was Mark Twain's first book after a silence of five years. It was a book badly needed by his publishing business with which to maintain its prestige and profit. It was a book which was to come out of his maturity and present his deductions as to humanity at large and kings in particular to a waiting public. It was determined to spare no expense on the manufacture, also that its illustrations must be of a sort to illuminate and, indeed, to elaborate the text. Clemens had admired some pictures made by Daniel Carter, Dan, Beard, for a Chinese story in the Cosmopolitan, and made up his mind that Beard was the man for the Yankee. The manuscript was sent to Beard, who met Clemens a little later in the office of Webster and Company, to discuss the matter. Clemens said, Mr. Beard, I do not want to subject you to any undue suffering, but I wish you would read the book before you make the pictures. Beard replied that he had already read it twice. Very good, Clemens said but i wasn't led to suppose that that was the usual custom among illustrators judging from some results i have seen you know he went on this yankee of mine has neither the refinement nor the weakness of a college education he is a perfect ignoramus he is boss of a machine shop he can build a locomotive or a colt's revolver he can put up and run a telegraph line but he's an ignoramus nevertheless i am not going to tell you what to draw if a man comes to me and says mr clemens i want you to write me a story i'll write it for him but if he undertakes to tell me what to write i'll say go hire a typewriter to hall a few days later he wrote tell beard to obey his own inspirations and when he sees a picture in his mind put that picture on paper be it humorous or be it serious i want his genius to be wholly unhampered i shan't have any fear as to the results without going further it is proper to say here that the pictures in the first edition of a connecticut yankee in king arthur's court justified the author's faith in the artist of his selection they are far and away dan beard's best work the socialism of the text strongly appealed to him beard himself had socialistic tendencies and the work inspired him to his highest flights of fancy and to the acme of his technique. Clemens examined the pictures from time to time, and once was moved to write, My pleasure in them is as strong and as fresh as ever. 
I do not know of any quality they lack. Grace, dignity, poetry, spirit, imagination. These enrich them and make them charming and beautiful. And wherever humor appears, it is high and fine, easy, unforced, kept under, masterly and delicious. He went on to describe his appreciation in detail, and when the drawings were complete, he wrote again, Hold me under permanent obligations. What luck it was to find you. There are hundreds of artists who could illustrate any other book of mine, but there was only one who could illustrate this one. Yes, it was a fortunate hour that I went netting for lightning bugs and caught a meteor. Live forever. This was not too much praise. Beard realized the last shade of the author's allegorical intent and portrayed it with a hundred accents which the average reader would otherwise be likely to miss. Clemens submitted his manuscript to Howells and to Stedman, and he read portions of it, at least, to Mrs. Clemens, whose eyes were troubling her so that she could not read for herself. Stedman suggested certain eliminations, but on the whole would seem to have approved of the book. Howells was enthusiastic. It appealed to him as it had appealed to Beard. Its sociology and its socialism seemed to him the final word that could be said on those subjects. When he had partly finished it, he wrote, It's a mighty great book, and it makes my heart burn with wrath. It seems that God didn't forget to put a soul in you. He shuts most literary men off with a brain, merely. A few days later he wrote again, The book is glorious, simply noble. What masses of virgin truth never touched in spring before. And when he had finished it, Last night I read your last chapter. As Stedman says of the whole book, it's titanic. Clemens declared in one of his replies to Howells, I'm not writing for those parties who miscall themselves critics, and I don't care to have them paw the book at all. It's my swan song, my retirement from literature permanently and I wish to pass to the cemetery unclodded. Well, my book is written. Let it go. But if it were only to write over again, there wouldn't be so many things left out. They burn in me. They keep multiplying and multiplying, but now they can't ever be said and besides, they would require a library and a pen warmed up in hell. In another letter of this time to Sylvester Baxter, apropos of the tumbling Brazilian throne, he wrote, When our great brethren, the disenslaved Brazilians, frame their declaration of independence, I hope they will insert this missing link. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all monarchs 
are usurpers and descendants of usurpers for the reason that no throne was ever set up in this world by the will freely exercised of the only body possessing the legitimate right to set it up the numerical mass of the nation he was full of it as he had been all along and a connecticut yankee in king arthur's court is nothing less than a brief for human rights and human privileges that is what it is and it is a pity that it should be more than that it is a pity that he should have been beset by his old demon of the burlesque and that no one should have had the wisdom or the strength to bring it under control there is nothing more charming in any of mark twain's work than his introductory chapter nothing more delightful than the armoring of the yankee and the outset and the wandering with alisand there is nothing more powerful or inspiring than his splendid panoramic picture of the king learning mercy through his own degradation his daily intercourse with a band of manacled slaves nothing more fiercely moving than that fearful incident of the woman burned to warm those freezing chattels or than the great gallows scene where the priest speaks for the young mother about to pay the death penalty for having stolen a half penny's worth that her baby might have bread such things as these must save the book from oblivion but alas its greater appeal is marred almost to ruin by coarse and extravagant burlesque which destroys illusion and antagonizes the reader often at the very moment when the tale should fill him with a holy fire of a righteous wrath against wrong as an example of mark twain at his literary worst and best the yankee ranks supreme it is unnecessary to quote examples one cannot pick up the volume and read ten pages of it or five pages without finding them in the midst of some exalted passage some towering sublimity you are brought suddenly to earth with a phrase which wholly destroys the illusion and the diviner purpose howells must have observed these things or was he so dazzled by the splendor of its intent its righteous charge upon the ranks of oppression that he regarded its offenses against art as unimportant this is hard to explain for the very thing that would sustain such a great message and make it permanent would be the care the restraint the artistic worthiness of its construction one must believe in a story like that to be convinced of its logic to lose faith in it in its narrative is absolutely fatal to its purpose the yankee in king arthur's court not only offended the english nation but much of it offended the better taste of mark twain's own countrymen and in time it must have offended even mark twain himself reading it one can visualize the author as a careering charger with a bit in his teeth trampling the poetry and the tradition of the romantic days the very things which he himself in his happier moods cared for most howells likened him to cervantes laughing spain's chivalry away the comparison was hardly justified it was proper enough to laugh chivalry out of court when it was a reality but mark twain who loved sir thomas mallory to the end of his days the beauty and poetry of his chronicles who had written the prince and the pauper 
and would one day write that divine tale of the maid of orleans who was himself no more nor less than a knight always ready to redress wrong would seem to have been the last person to wish to laugh it out of romance and yet when all is said one may still agree with howells in ranking the yankee among mark twain's highest achievements in the way of a greatly imagined and symmetrically developed tale it is of that class beyond doubt howells goes further of all the fanciful schemes in fiction it pleases me most and i give myself with absolute delight to its notion of a keen east hartford yankee finding himself by a retroactionary spell at the court of king arthur of britain and becoming part of the sixth century with all the customs and ideas of the nineteenth in him and about him the field for humanizing satire which this scheme opens is illimitable colossal it certainly is as howells and stedman agreed colossal in its grotesqueness as in its sublimity howells summarizing mark twain's gifts nineteen o one has written he is apt to burlesque the lighter colloquiality and it is only in the more serious and most tragical junctures that his people utter themselves with voracious simplicity and dignity that great burly fancy of his is always tempting him to the exaggeration which is the condition of so much of his personal humor but which when it invades the drama spoils the illusion the illusion renews itself in the great moments but i wish it could be kept intact in the small and i blame him that he does not rule his fancy better all of which applies precisely to the writing of the yankee in king arthur's court intended as a fierce heart-cry against human injustice man's inhumanity to man as such it will live and find readers but more than any other of mark twain's pretentious works it needs editing trimming by a fond but relentless hand end of chapter one hundred and seventy one a connecticut yankee in king arthur's court read by john greenman